Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Helping you wake up, remembering this is our Father's world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. of hope. Good morning, people of faith. Good morning, my sisters and brothers in Christ. So a couple of, uh, a couple of headlines caught my attention early this morning. Um, first of all, Axios is reporting that some 89% of Americans, that, that's a really high percentage in our sort of 50-50 nation. So if, if, you see a, if you see polling that says that Nearly 90% of Americans agree on something or have a shared concern about something. That is, uh, that's at least worth a second look. So Axios is reporting this morning that 89% of Americans, both Republicans and Democrats, now, quote unquote, here's the word, worry about the economy collapsing. So the word worry is the one I want to settle in on there for just a moment. If 89% of Americans are openly in a state of worry Mm, what does that say about some portion of those Americans who are Christians, right? Okay, so this is, not, this is not a condemnation. This is a curiosity question. Are you worried? And if so, what, what does that word mean? Where, and where does your worry go to sit down and rest? Where does your uh, worry, where do you take your worry? Where do you carry your worry? Where do you set it and leave it and let God tend to it? Worrying uh, is not going to add uh, a nanosecond to your life. And worry is um, terribly unproductive. So maybe the word is concerned. Maybe the word they should have used in this uh, Axios Ipsos Coronavirus Index survey that they have been doing week over week. By the way, this is the seventh week of the Axios Ipsos Coronavirus Index survey. So they've been asking these same questions over and over and over again. This is the one number that continues uh, to rise, and that is the worry number. And so the worry among Americans is rising. Why is that? Well, it is uh, based on some of the headlines that you just heard. Um, let's say the food security, right? We we now have concerns related to um, the U.S. food supply. That was not a concern. Early on, we now have concerns that maybe schools will not reopen. We didn't have that concern early on. We have concerns that uh, some cities are going to reopen and those cities rely on mass transit and those mass transit operations are, um, I mean, you know, that just puts people in very, very close proximity. So how are those cities going to reopen if they can't open their mass transit? And if we reopen uh, cities and we don't reopen schools, uh, where are all those kids going to go? You can see the worry. You can see why people worry. Like, I'm not, I'm not questioning why people worry. I am asking as Christians where we carry that, where we deposit that, how we go on um, living our lives in not only pursuit of the things of God, but in pursuit of God himself in the midst of uh, a rising tide of reasons to, quote unquote, be worried. 
So let us be people who worry for nothing, but carry those concerns um, seriously with gravity. We're not going to be silly about this. We're going to carry these concerns with gravity, um, but we are also going to set them down on the shoulders of the one who can handle it, and that is the Lord our God. Uh, You are yoked to Christ. Let me remind you of that this morning. You are yoked to Christ. You are yoked to Christ. That means whatever burden you have, he is shouldering it right alongside you. And the question is whether or not we're going to keep our eyes focused on on Christ, the one who frankly is the stronger brother in this uh, in this mule team, right? If I'm yoked to Christ, uh, let me just go ahead and confess, he's the stronger brother in that mule team. And I'm going to allow him to carry the burden today. I can't carry it. I know that. I'm yoked to him. He's willing to carry it. He has carried it. And he will carry it today. So let me just encourage you today, as you are yoked to Christ, let the one who is the stronger brother carry the load today. You, you do what you're called to do, which is keep your eyes focused on him, stay close to him, walk step by step with him by the power of the Spirit, in faith, not by sight. Next up, Nick Pitts. He and I are going to talk about the oil industry. We're also going to talk about a, a question that Pew Research has, uh, has been posing that indicates a lot about the worldview of Americans today. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. We'll be right back. Joining me again today, Nick Pitts. He is a fellow at the Institute for Global Engagement. You can follow him on Twitter at JNickPitts. Welcome back, sir. Carmen, so good to be with you. Happy Tuesday. Happy Tuesday, man. So um, it was just over a week ago, at least in my mind, um, that we were in a, a fitted panic about the collapse of oil stock prices. First of all, you are uh, familiar with this industry. So give us a little perspective a week later, um, and then um, and then just tell us, you know, sort of the maybe the roller coaster of feelings and emotions that you've had yeah. over the course of the last ten days. Yeah, like you like you alluded to uh, from this morning's Axios uh, morning email by Mike Allen. Eighty nine percent of Americans are expressing worry, concern, anxiety over the state of uh, our economy, over the state of what COVID-19 is doing. And it's only being exasperated right now as we're entering into this new normal. But one of the ways that we're starting to experience some of this worry is that you know, there's the estimation that we could lose upwards of 47 million jobs uh, this year due to the pandemic. And that's hitting especially hard uh, oil and gas right now. Um, I have I transitioned a little over... Uh, six months ago, out of kind of the nonprofit sector, doing more think tank work, transitioned over to communication piece, working for a natural gas company here in Texas. And so Texas has always had a pretty thriving, robust oil and gas industry. And this is just this hits in a variety of different ways, because I don't know if we fully comprehend yet the, the pivotal role 
that the oil and gas industry play, not simply in just fueling our needs, but really allowing our communities to be able to thrive because there's so many tentacles that they reach into, not only from a, um, not only just from a business standpoint, but also from a philanthropic standpoint, uh, essentially. The oil industry, Carmen, supports upwards of 10 million jobs right now that it seems like every week we're starting to see thousands of jobs lost in in this particular sector. That there's just there's so much that's happening right now, with potentially so much more that could be happening that just won't affect you when you fill up your gas tank, but could affect the local food bank, could affect the hand sanitizing, could affect the plastic that you use. There's just so many tentacles. Right. So when we talk about oil and gas, we're also talking about every petroleum-based product that we mm-hmm. use, which are many. Um, we're also <laughs> talking, I mean, when we talk about 10 million jobs, like that is um, that's a really extraordinary number. And yet mm-hmm. that number represents, um, you know, maybe not 10 million families, but it does represent um, very, very close to that. I mean, you know, o- only in cases where both people are in the industry, you know, could we discount that and say, well, that's, you know, one family impacted because there's two jobs. I happen to have a uh, a cousin who he and his wife are both in, um, you know, work for Chevron. And so, you know, that's maybe just one family. However, um, when we talk about the the waves of um, of impact, we're not just talking about 10 million families. We're talking about kids in schools across the country and around the world. We're talking about academic institutions that rely on um, oil and gas to fund research we are talking about um, ministries that rely on donors who work in oil and gas or whose assets are based in um, in, in oil and gas. Uh, and so I do think that when we talk about a sector and we talk about the energy sector, um, it is bigger in terms of its impact than some other sectors. And again, Nick and I are not trying to um, make anyone worry today. We're trying to illuminate the reality of one particular uh, sector, and and I would like for you to explain what happened in terms of um, what I think is the futures market mm-hmm. related to uh, you know the cost of a barrel of oil. None of us really understood um, outside of the industry. You know how could a barrel of oil cost less than zero dollars, right? Because mm-hmm. obviously yeah. the production of that um, and the distribution of that are expensive. I mean, you know, you got to extract it out of the ground, you have to refine it, and then you have to get it somewhere, and then you have to turn it yeah. into some kind of product that's usable to me. All of that costs a lot of money to do. And so how could um, the future of a barrel of oil cost less than a dollar? Yeah, so there's there's really two things that it's important to be able to see the global forces that you need to pay attention to. One would be the reality that um, that there's just great discombobulation right now that's happening overseas relative to the oil market. You're hearing it with certain phrases like OPEC, Saudi Arabia, et cetera, that they're pumping more oil into the market that, than is necessary right now. And that's causing the price to go down. Obviously, there's an oversupply of it. And then coupled that with some of the technology relative to fracking that's been happening here in the U.S. over the past 20 years, as well as just us becoming energy independent. There was just a glut of oil that was happening on the market, and we just don't have any place to put it anymore. And so the natural inevitable question is, well, then why doesn't the U.S., why doesn't Saudi Arabia, why doesn't some foreign entity, why don't they just stop pumping it? 
well, there's there's a lot of harm that can potentially happen if you stop pumping it and then with no storage in it. So obviously um, there's that piece where there's an oversupply on the market. But then the second piece you have to recognize is not only oversupply, not only no place to store it, but you're always buying oil on the future. Um, and so you're, you're buying future contracts for it. And so with the anticipation in the market that COVID-19 we've seen has decreased energy costs across the country anywhere from 5 to 15 percent, that's caused individuals to begin to, begin to forecast, well, potentially uh, uh, there's too much of it. And two, discombobulation that's happening overseas. So it just sent the price down significantly. Now, the good news is that it, it, it has recovered because, again, typically in the heat of the moment, like all, like all of us know, we tend to make irrational decisions. And knowing that oil and gas are so pivotal to, to life as we know it, um, we begin to think more rationally the further we begin to think about it. And so in the moment, the market reacted kind of uh, a little bit haywire. But now we're at a good place right now. But again, I, I want to continue just to stress how it just touches so many things. So, for example, uh, the uh, oil, and oil and natural gas are helping keep prices low relative to produce, relative to the food that we eat. Well, in reality right now, 46% of Americans said they couldn't cover a $400 emergency expense. 23% of Americans say they pay for their basic necessities, such as rent, utility, and food, out of their credit card. Oil and natural gas are helping individuals to be able to pay for their food and keep it at a reasonable level so that they, they might be able to save, so that they might be able to steward that money in a variety of other places in their local communities as well. All right, we're going to pause right there, Nick. Um, and when we come back, I'm hoping that you and I can pivot to this new Pew research on the question yeah. of um, who should get a ventilator. Um, I think this is a this is a worldview conversation people need to be aware of. I'm talking with Nick Pitts. He's a fellow at the Institute for Global Engagement. He and I will be right back. You're my defender. Continuing my conversation with J. Nick Pitts. He is a fellow at the Institute for Global Engagement. You can follow him on Twitter, at J. Nick Pitts. All right, Nick, um, before I ask you what I really want to ask you, which is that the state of Oklahoma has asked the president of the United States to declare uh, COVID-19 an act of God, <clears throat> because that would uh, somehow help the oil industry. Um, I'm going to set that aside for a minute, because that's... <laughs> supremely interesting to me. Um, but I'm going to ask you about this new Pew Research. Um, so I was I was intrigued by this um, in part because there is uh, Pew is pointing out a quote unquote divide uh, among Americans and they're basing it on religion. Now, religion is a really broad term here. And the yeah. definition of religion in this research is really, really broad and uh, not substantiated by anything that um, people might term like particularly substantive. But the mm -hmm. finding is that people who uh, are religious um, think that people who need a ventilator most should get one versus some kind of calculus based on who the ventilator is most going to help. Um, yeah. And non-religious people in America uh, uh, apparently are doing that sort of social Darwin math and saying, well, we're we're only going to give ventilators or we're going to give ventilators first. We're going to prioritize ventilators to the people they're most likely to help versus whoever needs it first. Just talk yeah. with us about about that calculus. Yeah, unfortunately, what 
just the context, we're beginning to see just kind of the fruits that we're reaping when individuals largely aren't being morally formed and don't have a conscience that has been um, religiously tinged, one might say, uh, just to be able to form kind of basic values and a morality as we make our way into the world. Traditionally, here in the U.S., that it's been done through the church as well as a variety of other different organizations, such as Boy Scouts, Civitan, Rotary, etc. These are all clubs and institutions that really do help shape us and shape the character inside of us to help us see that we're bigger than ourselves, one, and we're bigger than this moment, two. And um, as you alluded to, this social Darwinian understanding of really those most likely to benefit. Now, when you have that, when you don't have that religiously formed conscience, uh, most likely to benefit is limited to the here and limited to the now. And you don't see the value of life outside of how it can directly impact you specifically in this particular moment. Whereas what we believe to be true is that there is something so much greater than us here in this moment, at this particular time, in this particular place. Hence the reason why we would say we're going to fight against the idea of wanting to kill a child while they are in the womb simply because you're trying to plan your pregnancy and plan your parenthood wherever, uh, wherever and whenever you might like it. Hence the reason why Christians have been so adamant and have been so resolved relative to the euthanasia question that's happening at the end of life. Should we end suffering that's happening? Well, at the end of the day, we believe it to be true that our God has numbered our days and our lives are not our own, as well as they benefit more than we can see. And we know when we do things, when we sow into the spirit, we're reaping a harvest into eternity that we might not know the effects of. And unfortunately, as the research you've alluded to has pointed out, is that we are living in a world in which there are a number of individuals that are trapped in this moment entrapped in a particular place that don't have the imagination that's been infused by religion to be able to see outside of it. It occurs to me, Nick, that um, when it comes right down to it, most people are concerned about survival of me and yeah. mine. Survival of me and mine. And and the survival of me and mine um, in America means the survival of when we talk about, you know, just sort of Darwin's term of the fittest, the wealthiest and the most well-connected. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that's, that's not a Christian way to think about things. It's not a Christian way to think about people. It's not a Christian way to think about um, life. It's certainly not uh, a Christian mindset or worldview um, in terms of uh, the concerns that are now global in this pandemic. So I, I don't, I'm not, I don't even really have a well-formed question in that, but I just set that up there um, to, as a conversation point. Yeah, like uh, Carmen, you're exactly correct. I mean, you see it with the way that our Lord interacted in his three short years of ministry here. He was a non-discriminator uh, when it came to healing, when it came to his time that he gave, when it came to the, the gifts that he would give. I'm thinking about making his way to see Jarius's daughter. But before he saw Jarius's daughter to bring healing to this little girl, he was able to heal the woman that was bleeding. I mean, there's just this beauty that happens when you see the value of life in individuals that won't directly impact you specifically in this particular moment or in your particular place. And then also, Carmen, I just am so captivated by 
this isn't just a this isn't just a religious thing, but it also has implications for what we think of as a societal thing as well. I'm thinking about what makes America so great is this spirit inside of us that believes that we get outside of ourselves and we help our fellow neighbor. This is what differentiated America from so many other countries and what made Winston Churchill remark that we haven't made it this far because we're made of sugar candy, that we are individuals that are willing to help our neighbor. And Alexa de Tocqueville uh, would write in Democracy in America that this is the reason why we didn't wait for individuals to come and help a problem that was addressed in the local community, that local community had, but rather it was neighbors that came together and would solve that particular problem, even though it might not have direct impact on them. Selflessness is what has allowed our country not only to survive, but also distinguishes um, the Christian religion apart from so many others and what makes it so alluring. Hence the reason why we have our Lord that would come down and say, I haven't come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. Out of that mentality and act, we saw this a beauty that happened that is still radically changing this world, as well as what's causing others to take note that they've turned the world upside down. Amen. Nick, I feel like in the face of, uh, of that um of those observations, um, you know, it's important for us to maybe just warn one another as Christian brothers and sisters, warn one another against nativism, nationalism in the midst of all of this, because the me and mine concern can um, can get pretty nationalistic pretty quickly in times like these. Hey, brother, thank you so much. Um, I look forward to your reflections um, at some point on um, Oklahoma's calling on President Trump to declare COVID-19 an act of God. I feel like that is right in your wheelhouse, man. Could you, could you, could you work something up on that? Because that is good. Uh, you know, I, um, I, uh, more often than not, often on Twitter, I'll just go, "What a time to be alive!" My Amen. goodness gracious, we live in such a great time. What Amen. Time. Thank you, my brother. We'll follow up so soon. Good to be That's with you. so good to be with you. That's Nick Pitts, fellow at Institute for Global Engagement. We'll be right back. Churches um, across the country tend to focus their energy and their ministry programming um, on families defined as those with children, and then discipleship programs on children's ministry um, or or discipleship that is focused on new believers. Um, it does not tend it does not tend to focus on the ongoing cultivation of what we will call the sage, the maturing Christian, the maturing adult, the person, you know, from middle age and up who has been a Christian for a long time. Uh, It's as if we consider it, you know, you're all grown up and you don't have any more growing in Christ to do. Well, that's just wrong. Um, my, My next guest is Michelle Van Loon. She's written a great book called Becoming Sage, Cultivating Maturity, Purpose, and Spirituality. It's really written for all of us who are uh, sort of more mature in terms of years, but not necessarily more mature in terms of faith. That conversation up next here on Mornings with Carmen. All right, so it's always the season of share here uh, at Faith Radio, and we always encourage you uh, in this listener-supported ministry to share as you can, when you can, with us by going to MyFaithRadio.com and hitting the Donate Now button. But we also have particular seasons during which we invite um, you to focus 
intentionally on uh, your ability to support this ministry and the way that we reach to a greater and greater number of people through an ever-multiplying digital uh, platform and footprint. So we have a week of Spring Share coming up next week. And so I'm going to ask you to begin praying about that now. Begin praying um, how God has sown resources into your life that you might now sow into this ministry that God might reap unto himself a harvest of righteousness in the days and weeks and years to come. I recognize that for many of us, this might be a pledge of our confidence uh, in God's resources that are yet to come in the future. Like, I get that during this season. But I'm going to ask you to begin praying about that now as we, uh, as we are preparing here at Faith Radio for our spring share next week. Next up, I have got Michelle Van Loon becoming Sage. We'll be right back. When struggles come, it's easy to wish your teens wouldn't make dumb decisions or rebel against the values you hold dear. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. Your family may seem like it's spiraling out of control, but you have a choice. Keep wishing that everything were different or choose to accept reality. Maybe the struggle you face with your teen today is actually an avenue for God's grace to show up in your household. Perhaps the conflict is actually causing you to trust God for the outcome more now than ever before. So today, don't chase the fantasy of a perfect home with perfect relationships. Thank God for the mess in front of you, because that's what He's chosen to use in your life. Do you have teenagers under your roof? Find more encouragement and helpful resources online at ParentingTodaysTeens.org. Michelle Van Loon, the book is Becoming Sage, Cultivating Maturity, Purpose, and Spirituality. Michelle, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Thanks for having me. It's good to be with you. All right. It is wonderful to have you here. I will summarize uh, your book in this sentence. Not every grown-up is grown-up in Christ. <laughs> That's, that is a really, really nice summary. So, and it only so I wanted- took- 50,000 words to say it. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it's excellent. So let's let's talk about grown-ups. Let's talk about the way that we um, think of people as being grown-up in the culture. But then let's really talk about uh, what it means to be sage and what it means to become sage. That's really what the book is about. Mm-hmm. It is. It is. Well, our, our culture is uh, kind of Peter Pan, if you think about it. We don't want to grow up. We want to stay young. um, And all you have to do is look at a celebrity who is in their 60s, who might be uh, a movie star, and they they don't look like most of the 60-year-olds that you may know or I may know. But it is more of that there's just not space for us, not only in our culture, but also I think in a lot of our churches, um, as we age, we become um, invisible, irrelevant, um, check writers and pew fillers, but that isn't the way that scripture talks about us as we age. And so discipleship 
is a question that should extend throughout all of our lives. So I'm glad you used that term because um, I was uh, I was taught pretty early on in terms of a young adult believer that that discipleship wasn't something I was ever going to graduate from. Um, that there was no graduation exercise, like when you graduate from high school, then that's it. You don't ever have to go to Sunday school again. Or, um, in, in fact, I would say that my Christian discipleship really started in earnest when I, you know, when I became an adult, when I was making those decisions for myself to engage the Word of God, to go to uh, to to church and discover the fellowship of God's people in an active place of service and my gifts and the way those might be applied. Like all of that happened for me. Um, as a young adult. And so I have this sense that discipleship is a lifelong um, pursuit of God, that I would know more and more of Him. Um, and then in discovering more and more of who God is, I then discover more and more not only of who I am, but the opportunities that uh, that I have in the world to, you know, to serve the God I love. For me, it is a lifelong pursuit, but I totally get it that that is not the formula followed in most churches across the country. You know, you were you, whoever, Robert Morris. Let's just go ahead and we'll just go ahead and give him a shout out. All of that is Robert Morris. There you go. Thanks, man. Well, well, God bless Mr. Morris. And there are people that do a good job framing the fact that this is something that happens over a lifetime. But I think often we we draw inferences from what isn't said to us. So we're great in the church, or I don't know always if great is the right word, but we're really strong at cultivating faith in young children and and in a family context. And a lot of churches have are offer great kind of starting blocks for new believers. But then because it remains in silence often the kind of the argument is so you just keep doing the same thing over and over again for the rest of your life and in some ways that's true the basic disciplines of study and prayer and worship and service and those those foundational things are do carry us through our lives the practice of them looks different but the questions change. And my focus in my book was on midlife and beyond. And definitely the the questions and challenges and changes and what growth looks like does change as we get older. And so I'm trying to open up a conversation about what that can look like among individuals as well as among church leaders and ministry leaders and people doing the discipling. So Becoming Sage is the book, Cultivating Maturity, Purpose, and Spirituality. Uh, Michelle leads off with this conversation of what does it mean to become sage, uh, defining maturity and what does that look like, Um, and then offers this six-step plan, including prayers, for reconnecting to one's faith. So if you are of sage age, but um, desiring to become sage in terms of your own faith development and maturity, what what might a plan that would move you toward that, uh, a, a reconnecting plan, what might that look like? That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen.
Continuing my conversation with author Michelle Van Loon, the book is Becoming Sage, Cultivating Maturity, Purpose, and Spirituality. We are talking about uh, the second half of life. What does it look like as people who are all grown up in terms of the world's perspective? What does it look like to be all grown up in terms of our relationship with the Lord our God, to continue pursuing Him throughout our life? Michelle, talk with us about this six-step plan for reconnecting to one's faith. Well, I'm. I think plan actually might be um, overstating. Too strong word. <laughs> <laughs> it a little. Um, if, if anything, the one thing that we learn as we get older is that formulas aren't. Um, they they don't always fit. Um, life is often more complex. And one thing that I've, I've said about midlife is that um, it's not going to be a 10-week Bible study that is going to um, solve the issue. The issue is really understanding what spiritual growth looks like and what the goal of maturity is. Um, that a lot of times people just aren't even really sure what they're aiming at. We're all saying we should grow up to be in Christ and to be mature and to be complete in him. But oftentimes that's a really, really fuzzy notion. And the process of growth can look a lot like pruning and can look a lot like abiding in a vine and being able, especially at midlife and beyond, when the losses start to accumulate, being able to have language and understanding about what is happening in life and to to make space for things like grief, um, you know, that aren't necessarily a part of early Christian um, discipleship when you're talking about children or young adults who are trying to figure out who they're going to be in the world. Um, but the changes, the losses, the upheavals, and the disorientation that comes with those things, it leads to a lot of uh, different questions. And some solutions stay the same, they don't change. But being able to understand that those losses and changes and the complexities of decisions that come as you get older, that seems like they get harder and harder as we get older and older for a while. Um, that's, that's kind of my message that there is a way to be able to um, be hospitable to people who are changing and to value people who are older and to realize they're an important part of our church communities. Absolutely. So um, thank you for expunging the word plan. Um, <laughs> no, that's so important. Um, so you do, I will reframe that. Um, you do offer these six sage conversation starters with God um, for reconnecting to one's faith. Uh, God, I believe in you. God, I belong to you. God, I'm working for you. God, where are you? I'm alone in the dark. God, I'm ready to pass along what you've given me. God, I'm coming home. Mm -hmm. And those those questions, those descriptors come from um, kind of being able to think about what does faith look like at 
as it develops, just like we think about what happens in a child's physical development, you know, that you've got to crawl before you walk usually, although there's a few eager babies that jump right up and start running when they're, you know, nine or 10 months old. But in most cases, there's steps and there's different challenges at every kind of step of the way. You know, we we definitely see that in pre-adolescence as they're wrestling. Some days they're kids, some days they're 35-year-old adults, um, you know, in the way that they are up and down. So it is with spiritual growth and development that we can start with with that simple trust of believing in God and that we grow in our faith. We understand what it means to belong to God. And out of belonging often comes service that we're working for God. And so that looks like an upward trajectory. But at some point, a lot of us hit that, God, where are you? I'm alone in the dark. Um, And that often coincides with midlife for for many, not all. Some people don't like the discomfort of wrestling with, with that sense of darkness, that dark night of the soul, as it's been called. Um, but out of that darkness, out of that disorientation, great productivity um, spiritually can come. And it doesn't mean necessarily that you're doing more. As a matter of fact, it's just the opposite in many cases, that you're looking to create legacy, that you're looking to make meaning out of everything that's come before. And that's what prepares us for for coming home to God. So understanding that things change as we grow is of of very valuable kind of orienting tool. It may not be a plan, but it definitely helps to orient what can sometimes feel disorienting um, when in times of rapid change, like right now, the times we're living in. Absolutely. So I have one final question, Michelle, because um, I know that there are people who are my age. I'm 51. Um, I would consider that, you know, early middle age. Uh, and and I certainly know people who are older than me who were never discipled. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's not for them going to necessarily be uh, a refresher course. It's going right. to be a, a course in actually what does it look like to connect with God now at this age and stage of life? If I'm a Christian, but I was never discipled, this is for me. Am, am I right about that? It, absolutely. The the reflection questions that I ask, there's questions at the end of every chapter that are suitable for church groups at churches, whether it's a, a book study or um, a group of leaders that are trying to, to be more intentional about how to care well for all their members. And there's individual questions because God doesn't waste anything. So even if the the early life discipleship program may feel incomplete. God is the one who is causing the growth, who is doing the pruning, and who is inviting people to follow him right where they are. All right. And let me just say this. If you're listening right now and you're saying to yourself, 
Um, I know I need that. And I also know that there are other people in my spheres of influence who um, would benefit by this kind of conversation. The book is Becoming Sage, Cultivating Maturity, Purpose, and Spirituality. Um, And you could do, you could actually like set up a way of having uh, a book group or a book club or a book discussion of this online right now. You don't have to wait until you guys can get back together. You can get together now on um, on Facebook or on Zoom or on some other platform. Go ahead and start this conversation. Don't wait until, you know, sort of things get, quote unquote, back to normal to start regrowing, to, to actually have a, a season of growth and, and becoming sage. That's what we all need to be doing at this stage and age of life. We need to be becoming sage. So let us be cultivating maturity, purpose, and spirituality right now. Uh, Michelle, thank you so much for your assistance in doing this, and thank you for the book. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. We'll be right back. All right. Not every grown-up is grown-up in Christ. We are encouraged um, by Paul to grow up in every way into Christ, who is the head, into full maturity, to the full stature and measure of Christ. And so today needs to be a day of growing up. Uh, And so let us be firmly planted in the Word of God. Let us be uh, watering, letting the the water of, uh, of the Holy Spirit pour in upon us. Let the light of Christ shine on us that we might be growing up into him in every way. So how are you growing up today in Christ? Um, We are not Toys R Us kids. I don't, you know, that that sort of I don't want to grow up spirit. We want to grow up into Christ. We got a whole nother hour up next. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.